That was the opening music to Gentleman's Agreement, released in 1947 by 20th Century Fox. And I'm Matt Johnson. And I'm Bob Johnson, and we're glad to uh, welcome you to our podcast on what I think is one of the best movies ever made. I would agree. Um, You can find us on the web at www.classicmoviereviews.net and in iTunes, just search for Classic Movie Reviews, and you'll see us in there. So yeah, I would agree. This is uh, definitely, I mean, I'll just come out and say it at the very beginning, uh, 10 out of 10 for me, this is an amazing movie. I would agree. You know, it's it's interesting. I was, I was I'm looking at your notes here as they've come in, and uh, the first half of the movie is all sort of a patient, let the story develop. You get to know the family. I love that. Yeah, it's all. I think the first, almost the first forty-five minutes, um, maybe even up until the first hour, is just set up for what happens later. Um, and you know when I when the movie first started, well before we get into the movie, I had a couple uh, things that I did want to talk about. Uh, I found uh, a, an article on the internet about 20th Century Fox and Netflix, and the reason there's so many 20th Century Fox movies on Netflix is they signed a big deal to put a lot of their content uh, onto Netflix, including TV shows and. Uh, new movies and and classic movies, and so it, it's not surprising to me that a lot of our reviews are 20th Century Fox, just because there's so much content on Netflix from that studio. Uh, thanks for sending me that article. It was interesting. I I would think we'll see more of that with uh, Warner Brothers and Universal and some of the other studios. It's, it's such such a great vehicle to uh, distribute their their. Uh, their entertainment. Uh, good for us that it was on there, right? Oh, definitely. Uh, because the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, we had a comment uh, on our website, uh, and she was commenting on South Pacific, and she said that she uh, hadn't seen the movie in a long time, and our review uh, prompted her to go onto eBay and, and buy a copy of it, and that was going to be her... Uh, her plans for the weekend was to watch the movie. And so she al- she also, in her comment, suggested that we watch a movie called Brief Encounter. <clears throat> so I went out and uh, found a copy of that, and that's going to be our next uh, review, is uh, Brief Encounter. So thank you for su- uh, the suggestion. And I'm not sure if I can say her name on the podcast, but... Uh, but you know who you are, and I appreciate your your uh, input. And uh, that's going to be the next one that we do. I, I was I've seen that movie. It's really really well done, with Trevor Howard and Cecilia Johnson. Yeah, and I and I I hadn't heard of it. So again, I'm getting an education uh, through this podcast. <laughs> the beauty of the uh, podcast is that the person that made the comment uh, is. Uh, in a, in another country, so yeah, they're in the we're getting in the viewers UK, and listeners. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and one other comment: uh, we 
it's it's kind of hard to tell what our most popular episodes are. It's 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 difficult to get statistics sometimes uh, because of the way that the podcast is distributed. Uh, but definitely, I think one of our most popular episodes has been Young Frankenstein. And you and I got to talking about other Universal monster movies because there's a plan at Universal Studios, I guess, to come out with remakes of all the classic Universal monster movies. And I I, I found a link, which I'll put into the show notes uh, on the website, about that. And uh, it's interesting because when we reviewed... Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, There's there'd been talk about remaking that movie, but right. this makes it sound like there's a bigger plan in place, kind of like what uh, Disney did with the Marvel uh, movies, and really kind of putting these all together into uh, a string of movies that would come out over the course of several years. Well, that'd be fun. Uh, I just wonder who's going to play the Bella Lagosa part. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, and I wonder too, because they've there's so many different like Dracula slash vampire movies. There's so many Frankenstein movies. There was one that just came out last year called I Frankenstein, uh, or it might have even been earlier this year. So I wonder what they're going to do to differentiate these new movies from <clears throat> all these other kind of genre films that have come out in the last, you know, 40 years. That'll be fun when they, when they uh, start showing those. I know we've talked about uh, doing back-to-back-to-back episodes of the old Universal Horror Studios uh, movies, so that's upcoming as well. Yeah, well, so... shall, we, shall we move on with uh, Gentleman's Agreement? Well, we should. So um, I've got some background on it. I always like to look up how it did and who was involved. I'm amazed that Daryl F. Sanek... Uh, and how he was able to direct, uh, uh, as the chief executive officer of 20th Century Fox, to do these movies. Uh, I guess, in my reading, a lot of the other studio executives urged him not to make it because it would make too many waves and cause too much concern, and he went ahead and made it anyway. Uh, there's, a, there's a good parallel in the movie, too, because uh, in one of the scenes when uh, Philip Green, which is Gregory Peck's character, first meets all of the... Uh, other staff at the magazine. Uh, there's a a big industrialist there, and right. he uh, yep. he urges the editor of the magazine not to do the story. And I thought that was interesting, and it kind of reflected what happened with the movie, because you were saying that the the director uh, and producers were urged not to not to make the movie. I also uh, really. Enjoy. Uh, I hope I get his name correct, Elia Kazan, because he's made so many movies that are outstanding. Uh, a Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, East of Eden, on and on. And then the other thing that struck me is that I think everybody that had a major part in this movie was nominated for an Academy Award. Gregory Peck, Dorothy McGuire, uh... Anne Revere, Celeste Holm, who won for Best Supporting Actress. It's amazing. And it won his Best Picture in 1947. So we picked a good one. Yeah, we did. And I I can see why it was nominated for so many uh, awards, just because um, as I watched it the second time, every single scene in the movie has a purpose. I mean, every... 
every bit of dialogue, every little look or glance that the actors have between each other is there for a reason. It's just a really tightly mm -hmm. made, really well-made movie. I mean, it's sort of a master class in how to make a, a movie uh, right up there with uh, Double Indemnity, I think, in terms of... Oh. I mean, I think, honestly, I think it's even a more well-made movie than that, just in terms of how tightly uh, put together it is. I marvel at the ability of someone to tell that story and do it in under two hours and make it really, really entertaining. It, 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 it never felt during the movie that it was preaching at me in terms of what it was, what the points were, but... It's just really, yeah, I would agree. I mean, of all the movies we've reviewed, to me, this is at the top of that list, uh, followed closely by Double Indemnity. And, you know, there were a lot of movies in the 1940s and 19, through the 1960s that uh, had you know, began the themes of the change in our culture and society. There were, it goes back to the best years of our lives in 46 on the waterfront, the men, the defiant ones, Judgment at Nuremberg, and, and many directors, uh, Stanley Kramer, William Wyler. It was really a significant change in movie making, say from oh, 1945 until 1970. There was a scene um, in the movie, um, and we should mention that we're going to put this out as two parts, because uh, I think we're going to try to do this movie the justice it deserves and, and go into quite a bit of detail. Uh, but in the second half of the movie, there's a scene where Mrs. Green, who's uh, Philip's mom, kind of the grandma uh, figure in in the movie, and the, and the mother figure as well, uh, played by, is it Anne Revere? Anne Revere, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, uh, in the first half of the movie, is having a lot of heart problems and, and seems to be pretty ill. Uh, but by the end of the movie, she's she makes a comment that she hopes to live to be very old because she wants to see where all this is going and that that it's at the beginning of the social change that's happening. And I thought that was a really kind of a meta comment on not so much not, uh, the movie itself, but just the time that the movie was being made in yeah. oh i agree 1947 gee just off the top of my head uh jackie robinson first african-american player in baseball with the brooklyn dodgers the whole political scene was shifting around so that 1948 there were four parties that ran viable candidates for president it's just an amazing time huh yeah, I, I loved her. I loved uh, Grandma. I'll call her Grandma. Every scene she was in, I was like, I could watch this for 20 minutes each scene. She kind of reminded me of Ma Jode from Grapes of Wrath. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's true. That's very true. And and uh, she was so open-minded. I couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah, she was great. Uh well, do you want to go through it kind of scene by scene, or how do you want to do that? I, yeah, I think so. I, I, why don't we start with uh, Gregory Peck and Dean Stockwell, who is still making movies, uh, going through New York City. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that was Dean Stockwell the first time I watched it. I, I've started to not do as much research on the movies the first before I watch it for the first time, just so I can come at it fresh. 
And so then the second time I watched it, I was looking up the uh, actors and I was like, whoa, that's Dean Stockwell. And then I, uh, when I watched it, I could see it looks like a young Dean Stockwell. <laughs> oh, yeah. He made a lot of movies. One of my favorites, I don't know that we'll ever review it, is The Boy with Green Hair. <laughs> I hadn't heard of, hadn't has, heard of that it, one. Yeah, it has to do with uh, the Cold War threat and nuclear arms and all. It's quite a quite a movie. But anyway, I, I love that scene in New York City. It reminded me when you and I went back to New York City back in the late '80s at Christmas time, and they were kind of taking the same tour that we did. Oh, it totally reminded me of that. And the, yeah. just the scenes of the city were great, and the old cars and the the old dress that you know the way people were dressing and the fashion yeah it's it's a great scene it just the opening music set it for me like it's going to be a fun movie it's going to be uh, upbeat it's kind of like a rich and luxurious feel to it and i was like wow where's this going because i was expecting something more dramatic and heavy at the beginning i've already mentioned this before but every time mr green and his mother visit when they first you know he's late to meet her at the department starts like, oh, they could talk for another 10 minutes. I love this. Yeah, I love the banter between them. And uh, Tommy had kind of given away that Grandma's not too happy with uh, Philip <laughs> on a couple things. And Philip's like, uh... I just love waiting for people. I always say there's nothing as much fun as standing around waiting for people who are always late. Well, we're late, Ma, because I've been carrying the world around on my shoulders. It's kind of heavy. You can't walk too fast. Well, put it down gently, dear, and give me some money for your son's shoes. Now, thank you, Tommy, to keep your mouth shut hereafter. I told Poppy he was getting tougher and tougher to have around the house, too. How much are shoes in New York? Better give her ten bucks. Wish me luck, Ma. I'm going up to the magazine now. Good luck, Phil. I hope it's something you want this time and not too far away. It'll be right here. Otherwise, Minifee wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to get us the apartment. Does Mr. Minifee always tell you what to write? Don't you ever think of what to write yourself? Well, yeah, I think sometimes to myself. Well, I'm late. Have fun. Oops. <laughs> he was a little, <laughs> in a little bit of trouble. But then they go from that scene in the, in the, uh, the store to the uh, scene at the magazine... And we get some more scenes around New York, and it, it really gives you a sense of place. Uh, it does a really great job of grounding the movie in New York. Um, I'm sure most of the movie was filmed on a studio set, but the scenes that they shot in New York were, were fantastic. Um, and that scene in the office was hilarious. They had those rotary phones, <laughs> and telegrams were coming in, and operators were answering the phones. It was, it was pretty funny. Wasn't wasn't the editor and the owner of that uh, magazine or newspaper uh, a refreshing character? I mean, he he really wanted to do this. I think that's the best role that Albert Deckard ever made or ever played as, I, I, as the Mister Minifee. Yeah, yeah. Well, I liked it because it, it wasn't too stereotyped. I thought it was you know here's a guy who's running a successful magazine and he's got limited time, but he's going to devote an hour or two hours to talking with uh, Philip about this idea that he's got uh, for what he wants him to work on at the magazine. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was, it was, he just seemed like a really good guy right from the beginning. He really did, and he played that part consistently the same throughout the whole movie. Then we get to the dinner party because uh, Mr. Minifee's invited uh, Philip over to his house for dinner. And 
again, it's it seems like what I was like, where's this movie going? It's like <laughs> <laughs> I think we're like 15 minutes into the movie or, or 10 minutes into the movie, and I I just felt like, oh, it's kind of a nice movie about this guy living in New York City. Uh, but then we learn a little bit more about what the plot's uh, going to be about when when Philip meets Kathy. She's divorced, which I think is kind of unusual for back then, don't you think? Was, wasn't that... Yeah, that was, that, that was another uh, thing that people were... Uh, many people in, the, in entertainment thought that would not fly well because she was divorced. It was the subject of anti-Semitism. Uh, he was a single man. I mean, it had a lot... For the time, it was really kind of leading edge. When Kathy starts talking to Philip, she kind of dresses him down on the way that he had interacted with her at the at the very first. And funny, you're suggesting this series. Is it? Why? Oh, uh, lots of reasons. You make up your mind too quickly about people, Mr. Green. Women, anyway. I saw you do it when you sat down. <laughs> as a parent as all that. Well, you cross-filed and indexed me. A um, little too well-bred, self-confident, artificial, trifle absurd. Typical New York. No, I didn't have time for all that. Oh, yes, you did. I even left out a few things. Faintly irritating upper-class manner, over-bright voice. All right, all right. I give up. <laughs> you win. I'm sorry I couldn't resist it, because it's only partly true. She was saying to him that he shouldn't make such snap judgments about people, especially women. I thought that was a good kind of comment on her part. And we find out later in the movie that uh, she uh, has some issues as well, don't we? Yeah, and, you know, I, I was trying to think of, like, the major themes of the movie, and for sure, like, talking about anti-Semitism, Semitism is a is a major theme, but another one I felt was dealing with these ingrained ideas and behaviors that we have because you know she's got some and Philip's got some and you know all the characters do all the characters in the movie I felt were fairly complex you know there there weren't too many characters that were just sort of a, a one note character for me oh to, there weren't any that I can think of um, the thing that is interesting to me watching this movie is the pace at which it unfolds compared to the movies that we might see today in the theater. It's very rare to see a movie kind of go that long to set up the story. And I also was struck by the fact that it talks about family values because the grandma and Gregory Peck's character in the center are living together and they love each other, obviously, and their strong friendship with Dave Goldman the John Garfield character, uh, the commitment of the owner of the magazines to uh, what he thought was a right. I mean, there was just a lot of different themes going on in the movie beyond just the anti-Semitism, which in itself was huge. Yeah, and, and it was all pretty subtly done as well. I, I was a little nervous going into it. I, I wondered how they were going to handle this, especially what I figured would be kind of the latter part of the movie. But it was so realistically, I don't, I mean, I felt like it was so realistically done in terms of portraying the way in which these prejudices come out and are kind of surfaced in different contexts. You know, we, we get a little bit of that um, 
Well, you know, actually, even this far into the movie, let's let's jump ahead just to the next scene when they're sitting around the breakfast table, and they're talking about this story that uh, the magazine wants Phil to work on, and Phil says that there's a girl. Menifee's niece suggested that series on anti-Semitism. Funny. You don't say. Why women will be thinking next, Phil? What's mm-hmm. anti-Semitism? Hmm. That's anti-Semitism. Oh, that's where uh, some people don't like other people just because they're Jews. Hmm. Why? Are they bad? Well, some are, sure. Some are. It's like everybody else. What are Jews, anyway? I mean, exactly. Well, you remember last week when you asked me about that big church? Sure. I told you there were lots of different churches? Yeah. Well, the people who go to that particular church are called Catholics, see? And there are people who go to other churches, and they're called Protestants. And there are others who go to still different ones, and they're called Jews. Only they call their kind of churches synagogues or temples. And why don't some people like those? Well, that's a kind of a tough one to explain, Tom. Some people hate Catholics, and some some hate Jews. And no one hates us because we're Americans. Well, no, no, that's... uh, that's another thing again. So you can be an American and a Catholic, or an American and a Protestant, or an American and a Jew. Look, look, Tom. It's like this. One thing's your country, see, like America, or France, or Germany, or Russia, all the countries. The flag is different, and the uniform is different, and the language is different. And the airplanes are marked different? Differently, that's right. But the other thing is religion, like the Jewish or the Catholic or the Protestant religion. See, that hasn't anything to do with the flag or the uniform or the airplanes. You got it? Yep. Well, don't ever get mixed up on that. I got it. Some people are mixed up. Why? It's 8.30, Tommy. You better get going. Yeah, yeah. You'll be late. Because I think that's a really important quote. That's that's just really well done. And then the mom says, you know, you, you always have a good way with him, with Tommy. You know that, like you say, that relationship between uh, Gregory Peck's character and uh, uh, Anne Revere's character is just really well done. I, I wanted to just mention one thing about the the breakfast table. Yeah, this <laughs> this is this is dating me, but those boxes of cereal compared <laughs> to ones today yeah. look miniature. I mean, they're little tiny, and that's the way they were in those days. <laughs> because it was so expensive to ship things, nowadays you get these mega boxes that you know you have to have two hands to lift. I didn't even think I, of that. I, well, I, I watch for these because I'm like I'm struck by the the time that it's done almost seventy years ago and how different we are today from then. But that family, I mean, she was just a plus throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and and Philip is is not convinced that this is a story that he can tackle because he's not sure of his angle. Um, and as he's getting ready to leave to go to work, um, his mom says to him that... Oh, you mean there's enough anti-Semitism in real life for that people reading about? No. But this one's doomed before I start. What can I possibly say that hasn't been said before? I don't know. Maybe it hasn't been said well enough. If it had, you wouldn't have had to explain it to Tommy just now, your father and I to you. It would be nice sometime not to have to explain it to someone like Tommy. Kids are so decent to start with. Home for lunch? No. 
I'll take a walk. You're quite a girl, Ma. Kids are so decent to start with. And, you know, maybe you should do this story not because of some angle, but because more people need to understand what what this is about. And, man, that really reminded me of uh, that song in South Pacific of You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. Exactly. I was thinking of the same thing. It's like a parallel to that South Pacific music. I also thought Gregory Peck, did an outstanding, well, everyone did an outstanding job, but he did an outstanding job of presenting what anti-Semitism is to his son, but he looked like he was kind of struggling with it because he'd never really verbalized what it was like. I know, I, I know he, I'm, I'm sure he knew what it was, but he, I think it's tough to put that into words. Oh, I, I totally agree. And what I think what's, what's uh, difficult to explain to a child is that it's you know if if you're talking about racism, I think it's a little bit easier to to explain. Um, but when you're talking about something like anti-Semitism or just any kind of prejudice or behavior that people have when it's about ideas, you know, it's because it, I think at some point in the movie they talk about how Philip could pass as being Jewish because he right. you know, there's no there's no particular look per se. It's he could just tell people that he's Jewish, and nobody knows him in New York. So, um, but I, I jumped ahead a little bit there. I, I, I agree; it's it's a tough idea, I think, to communicate to to a child, or or just to anybody if they don't know much about it in that context. Particularly so if they don't care to listen or have an open mind about it. Well, Tommy's uh, reaction was great because he's like, "Oh." You know, he's just very, you know, childlike and, and right. Like, yep, that you know, thanks, Dad. I've got to go to school now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, uh, but but we get then, so we, so Philip goes on a walk uh, from his house, I guess, to his office, and we get some more great shots of New York City. And there's no dialogue in that scene; it's just him. And one of the things I noticed is that there are there are a lot of shots of just people looking at each other or the camera looking at somebody and, and kind of that nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. And, and that was really well done in the movie. It was, it contributes to the whole feel for uh, what New York city is like and the diversity of people and the excitement of the place. Yeah. So, uh, Philip has a meeting with Mr. Menifee and, and he says, okay, I'll take the, I'll take the story. And, and Mr. Menifee is like, well, what convinced you? And, and Philip's like, well, it's my son, and you know, I want to, I want to do this story so that I can really expose this and explain it. Uh, but he wants to talk to the research department because he needs lots of facts, facts and figures about it. No, it wasn't that. It was my kid. I had to explain it to him this morning. It was kind of tough. It's really each house, each family that decides it. Anyway, I want to do it very much. I couldn't be more pleased. I'll have to get some facts and figures from your research department. What? I said I'll have to get facts, figures from your research people. Now, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. I've got 18 hacks on this magazine who can do this series with their left hands chucked full of facts, figures, and research. I don't need you for that. What do you think I brought you here for? Facts and figures? Use your head. Go right to the source. I want some angle, some compelling lead, some dramatic device to humanize it so that it gets read. Oh, you don't want much. You just want the moon. With parsley. Suggestion? 
There's a bigger thing to do than to go after the crackpot story. It's been done plenty. It's the widest spread of it that I want to get at. The people that would never go near an anti-Semitic meeting or send a dime to Gerald L.K. Smith. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, I envisioned this whole room full of people that were just sort of typing things <laughs> yeah. out of record cards. And 18 hacks. And Philip says, well, you don't want much. You just want the moon. You know, it's like, God, you're asking for a lot here. And did you notice that in almost every scene, somebody lit up a cigarette? Oh, no kidding. There's so much smoke oh, yeah. in the movie. Boy, was that ever common for movies of that time. Yeah, I, I felt like I needed to open a window just to air the place out. <laughs> um, then we get to a scene where Kathy and Philip go to dinner. And I thought that the director did a great job of setting Kathy and Philip as falling in love. You know, that conversation over dinner yes. and then they, they dance. And you can kind of see that that they're starting to fall in love. And again, the pacing on it is is slow. It's not like in South Pacific where they just, you know, fall in love at first sight when Liette and, oh, I forget his name. Uh, but the, the lieutenant. Lieutenant, yeah. Fall in love at first sight. This is more built up over the course of like a half an hour uh, into the movie. And then the next scene is uh, Philip is sort of on a writing binge at his typewriter, but he just can't find the angle on the story. And uh, he gets interrupted by a phone call from Kathy and, and I love the dialogue between the two of them on the phone. I mean, I guess it was just Gregory Peck talking, but that dialogue uh, was great. And it reminded me of Double Indemnity, where there's really, it's really fast-paced and, and yep. snappy dialogue. And I love yep. that. And it's such a change of pace from some of the other scenes where it moves rather slowly. Philip says that he, he, he'll know it when he finds the angle, because there's a click that happens, and he just knows that he's got it. And he thinks that maybe talking to his friend Dave who is in the army uh, and is a childhood friend and is also Dave is Jewish. Uh, Phil thinks that by talking to Dave, he could get this uh, angle worked out. It's like beating your head against a concrete wall. See, I wish Dave were here. Dave Golden. Yeah. He'd be the guy to talk it over with, wouldn't he? Yes, I guess he would. Still overseas. Yeah, it looks like he's stuck there, too. He'd be just the one, though. Hey, maybe that's a new tack. So far, I've been digging into facts and evidence. I sort of ignored feelings. How must a fellow like like Dave feel about this thing? That's good, Phil. Over and above what we feel about it, what must a Jew feel about this thing? Dave. Can I think my way into Dave's mind? He's the kind of fellow I'd be if I were a Jew, isn't he? We, we grew up together. We lived in the same kind of homes. We were the gang. We did everything together. Whatever Dave feels now. Indifference, outrage, contempt would be the feelings of Dave not only as a Jew, but the way I feel as a man, as an American, as a citizen. Is that right, Ma? Sit down and write him a letter now. Hey, maybe I've broken this log jam, Ma. Maybe this is it. Put it down to me just like you said it to me. Now, what do I say? Say, dear Dave, give me the lowdown on your guts when you hear about Rankin calling people kikes. How do you feel when you hear about Jewish kids getting their teeth kicked out by Jew haters in New York City? Could you write that kind of a letter, Ma? No, it's no good, all of it. Wouldn't be any good if I could write it. There isn't any way you can tear open the secret heart of another human being, Ma. You know that. I love that line. That's that's great. 
I do, yeah. You, the writers on this are just marvelous, and they were nominated for an Academy Award for the screenplay. I can see why. Uh, but always, uh, his mom is supportive. You'll get it, Dave. Just keep working at it. You know, you know it's in there. Uh, you you, you got to imagine it's it's got to be so hard to make a living as a writer, and she's so supportive of him. She never once questions him or discourages him or. And I, at this point, he's a successful writer, but I imagine that through his career, she's been there for, for him. Uh, this kind of gets us a little bit ahead, but I, I thought that uh, John Garfield, as uh, Dave Goldman, was outstanding. I, again, every one of these movies has a favorite of mine, and one of my favorites is John Garfield. He had an absolutely incredible career that ended tragically. He died at 39 from heart disease. Uh, but boy, he was good in this. He, he had a minor role, really. He wanted to do this role. He he really pushed to be the one that they would select for the Dave Goldman character. And boy, he was good in that. Well, I mean, he had a he had a he had no role in the movie for the first hour. We don't even right, meet him right. until the second hour. But I think he had a pivotal role in the last quarter of the movie. I mean, he was. He he had there was one conversation between him and uh, Gregory Peck, and again we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it was after we find out what happens to Tommy at school, and then he had another conversation with uh, Kathy. Uh, and oh, in, in the restaurant. In the restaurant, yeah, yeah. and he helps Kathy sort of realize yeah. what she's been doing. It's sort of like this revelation to her about how. You've got to stand up to people. You can't just let these, you know, jokes slide. Um, and we'll get to that in the second half of the review. But yeah, I, I thought he was just a pivotal character in the second half of the movie. He had one of these careers, like uh, say James Dean, that was short-lived but really bright in terms of how it carries over even to today. At least for me. Oh, it's sad that he died young. Did you hear that uh, James Gardner died? Just a couple yes, years ago, I did. Oh my, yeah, yeah. Long life and but he had a success. he had a long life and a long career. So yeah, we'll have uh, to find a movie. It, sometime we can do a movie of James James Garner and Sally Field, uh, Murphy's Romance. It's a really nice movie from oh, about I've seen thirty that. years yeah, ago. Yeah, we should watch that. That's a good yeah. one. Okay, so back to the movie. Um, here, so after that conversation about the angle and that that Philip just can't get the angle right. Uh, we find out that grandma's sick and that she's got a heart condition. And that's, that was scary to me thinking about the state of medicine in 1947 versus today. That's, that's, uh, you know, it seemed like they just kind of took a wait and see approach. They had no yes. ultrasounds or, or much in the way of diagnosis other than, uh, the doctor says it's false angina as opposed to the true angina. <laughs> I'm like, how do and you I, know that? I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> He must be really omnipotent because he knows that, and he's also smoking. Yeah, the doctor smoked like a chain Perfect. smoker. Yeah, good heavens! But you know, this he, was a, he, he was an interesting character. The doctor, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah. We'll find out more about him in a in a couple scenes. But uh, I thought the scene with Grandma being sick kind of set up one of the last scenes in the movie uh, because she looks terrible in that scene where she's got the heart problems and the doctor came in to see her and kind of the next day later in the movie you know like i mentioned earlier she 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 decides she wants to live for a really long time you know and 
at this point in the movie, you don't know if she's going to make it to the end of the film. I know. I know it was, it, yeah, and and they were all such a closely knit group. Anyway, it, yeah. it it moves ahead well. I mean, she she perseveres. You know, I made a note that we're about a quarter of the way into the film, and we've barely touched on the subject of anti-Semitism, and it's kind of all set up for later. And I thought this movie, and I put it in quotes, I thought it seemed like life was kind of normal for everyone. Everyone's being nice to each other. Philip has lots of help, and everyone has been very welcoming. Uh, but again, I think it's just all set up to contrast with how things change later in the film. Well, you get you get kind of a preview of that with uh, when he meets his secretary at the office, when he has that discussion with the doctor. It's starting to uh, come out, the subtlety with which it uh, is so pervasive. Well, and, and so... so Philip's angle is... I was sitting here holding your hand waiting for the doctor. Why? <laughs> I was scared. Huh? It's like I used to be when, I, when I, I get to wondering what I'd do if anything ever happened to you. It all came back. I was a kid again and my ma was sick. Ah, Phil. Now, I wanted to ask, is it awful? Are you afraid? But there's some questions nobody can ask and, and they can't be answered. I'll know the answer to those two only when I feel it myself, when I'm lying there. And that's the way it is with the series, Ma. I can't really write it. But you did get the answers before, Phil. Every article you ever wrote, the right answers got in, somehow. Well, yeah, but I didn't ask for them. When I wanted to find out about a scared guy in a jalopy, I didn't stand out in Route 66 and stop him so I could ask a lot of questions. I bought myself some old clothes and a broken-down car and took Route 66 myself. I lived in their camps, ate what they ate. I found the answers in my own guts, not somebody else's. I didn't say, what, it, what does it feel like to be an Okie? I was an Okie. That's the difference, Ma. On the coal mine series, I didn't sit in my bedroom and do a lot of research, did I? I didn't go out and tap some poor, grimy guy on the shoulder and make him talk. I got myself a job. I went down in the dark. I slept in a shack. I didn't try to dig into a coal miner's heart. I was a miner. I got it. The lead, the idea, the angle. This is the way. It's the only way. I'll, I'll be Jewish. I'll, well, I, I, all I got to do is say it. Nobody knows me around here. I, I can just say it. I can live it myself for six weeks, eight weeks, nine months, no matter how long it takes. Ma, it's right this time. It must be, Phil. It always is when you're this sure. Listen, I even got the title. I was Jewish for six months. It's right, Phil. This is it. That click just happened inside of me. And I think it starts really with Kathy's reaction to that, because they have dinner, and Philip is all nervous about telling Kathy what uh, he's going to do, and he kind of hesitates. Uh, and they kiss for the first time at that dinner, which kind of freaks them both out. And But actually, Philip kind of almost proposes to her right on the spot. And Kathy tries out the name Mrs. Schuler Green, and they both like the way that sounds. Um, and I made a note that it was interesting to compare Kathy's reaction to finding out that Phil has a son to Nellie's reaction when she found out that Emil has two children in South Pacific. Oh, okay. 
Because she's very yeah. welcoming of the idea, and she's like, "Oh, it's like it's like my marriage. The years I was married before weren't wasted, and I have the son that I always I'd have the son that I'd always want." Uh, but in South Pacific, when uh, Nellie found out that Emil had those two kids, she kind of flipped out. Uh, let's see. So Philip takes the story, and then this the, this is where we get to that uh, business lunch, where he meets the other staff, and the one other Jewish per- person at the lunch, uh, Irving Wiseman discourages Mr. Menifee from doing the story and he says, let it alone. We've been fighting it for years. You know, we'll just do this ourselves. But Mr. Yeah. Menifee's going to have nothing of it. He's <clears throat> like, nope, we're doing this story. Yeah. And I think that parallels what went on at uh, with the uh, studios before this was made, between the stu- among the studios. And Leave it alone. Yeah, I think it was just such a controversial topic at the time and uh, I don't know if you caught this or not, but the look that Irving Wiseman gives uh, Philip after he announces that he's Jewish was just priceless. It was like either he was incredulous, like he couldn't, he didn't believe it, or he was just sort of like surprised. I don't know. It was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I did catch that. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of message there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but he looked at him like, really? Yeah, I, 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 I don't know what he I don't know what he thought he was. I don't know what was going on in his mind. Yeah. But then we get to the scene with, uh, I love this scene between his assistant slash secretary, because uh, he's going to get started on the story. And, man, this was this was surprising to me. I mean, this was a really, really well done scene, because we find out that uh, Elaine Wales is her name. We find out that she's Jewish, that she changed her name in order to get a job, and that she had applied to the magazine once using her true name, her Jewish name, and was rejected, saying that there were no openings. She applied a second time using her false name, Elaine Wales, and was accepted. And that she's only got the job because she was pretending she wasn't Jewish. And she says, it slays me, the great liberal magazine that fights for injustice on all sides, you know. I know, <laughs> That led to a, an interesting scene back in Mr. Menifee's office with the uh, personnel director and Gregory Peck and Mr. Menifee. Well, but there was a little bit more to that scene with the assistant because she starts talking about uh, that they can't just be hiring anybody because one of, right. what if some of the one of the bad ones gets in? And he's like, "What do you mean? We're not. We don't just hire, you know, obnoxious people here. It's, we're not going to start doing that." And we find out that she's got a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say, anti-Semitic thinking, but she sort of resigned herself to the way things are. And right. And uh, and I think the fact that Philip is sort of confronting her on these is is kind of shocking to her, and uh, she doesn't know what to make of it. I think that may have also been the look that uh, was at that luncheon when Mr. Weissman looked at him. I think there was some of that then. Well, maybe it's that they don't talk about it. You know, it's just not something right. that we talk about. Right. So right. why are you bringing this up? Why are you being so out in the open about this? It's It reminded me of that don't ask, don't tell policy that was in place for so long uh, in the military. Because, okay, you know. Maybe we know that you're gay, but just don't talk about it. You know, maybe we know you're Jewish, but just don't talk about it. We don't talk yeah. about it. He's and Mr. Minifee are going to confront that and come head on to what that actually means. 
So then we get to a scene with the doctor, and, and we find out that the doctor's a bit anti-Semitic, too, because he make, makes a rude comment about the chosen people overcharging yeah. for their services. And I, I, don't think he, I don't think he was going to come back to help them anymore after that conversation. I think he just didn't want to work with somebody who was Jewish, right? That's kind of the impression I got. And again, it was uh, a well-done scene, because I, I have to believe that's probably exactly what somebody would have said. So, that time. so we're 40 minutes into the movie at this point. He's decided that he's going to pretend that he's Jewish. We've gotten some pretty strong reactions from the two Jewish characters in the film up to that point. And now we're starting to get some reactions from other characters, kind of uh, minor characters in the film. And I, I kind of felt like this is where the film entered its second act. And it's kind of where everything starts to change for Phil. Like he starts mm-hmm. to, it's like he's pulled back the the sheets and he's he's like seeing like this whole other side of life that he hadn't even been a part of until this uh, experiment that he's doing this story and and it and it directly impacts him right at his apartment yeah because he's going to change the name on his mailbox and the building superintendent's like uh you can't do that <laughs> yeah he wanted to have both Name so when he sent out his resumes, they'd both be coming back to him. One with the Jewish background, one with a non-Jewish, and, and the, the I guess he was the janitor or the building superintendent. You can't do that. And we find that was out the that... first time I saw Gregory Peck get really angry. Yeah, he was like, nope. he said, "Saying, Mister Green." Why don't you fill out one of them cards at the post office better or watch for the mailman and tell him? Well, what's the matter with this way? It's the rules. Leave that alone. It's nothing I can help, Mr. Green. It's the rules. The renting agent should have explained. That is, excuse me, if you are. Excuse me, nothing. This is my place for two years, and don't touch that card. Man, I, I love Gregory Peck. I've seen oh, him in a few movies, but the last two that we've watched, uh, 12 O'Clock High and this one, he's he's so good. We could devote one year just to his movies. We should just do an episode of, of him on just talking about his career and movies and stuff, because he's amazing. Um, all right, so this is... So now, finally we get to the part where Phil tells Kathy his angle. Because up until this point, again, we're like 40 minutes into the film. He hasn't told her. And I I wondered why. I think he knows that this is kind of a big deal and it's kind of going to be a bombshell for her. And it is, because she kind of flips out about it. I'm just thinking. Well, don't be so serious about it. You must know where I stand. Oh, I do. It's just that you caught me off guard. You know, not knowing too much about you because you always make me talk about myself all the time so that for a minute there I wasn't very bright in the uptake. Well, anyway, you, you don't think much of my ankle. Oh, I do. It's... It's what? It's just that I... I think it'll mix everybody up. People won't know what you are. Of course, after the series is finished, they'll know, but even so, it'll keep cropping up, won't it? All right. I must be out of my head. Let it is right. Who cares? I was just being too practical about things. That's what comes from being a school teacher. Now tell me more. Well, 
To begin with, you and the Minifees will have to promise not to give me away, but really, no exceptions for anything, okay? Okay. What about the people at Smith's? Won't they talk? Well, they're not in on it, only Minifee. They think you're Jewish? Look, Kathy, I don't think you understand. If this thing is going to work, the only chance is to go whole hog at it. It's got to go right through everything. They have this really tense dinner, and they leave on, on kind of not-so-good terms uh, after the dinner. She's not so sure that she wants to do that. <laughs> I know. This is from the person who said, well, I was the one that proposed we do this article to begin with. She probably but thought it was going to be an article full of facts and figures, not him pretending and, to be Jewish. <laughs> and those 18 hacks writing up articles. 18 hacks, yeah. Uh, I thought the emotions in that scene were really well done, really realistic. Uh, it didn't, felt, didn't feel overdone. It didn't feel like too dramatic it was just very subtle uh and there's a scene kind of at the end of that where you can hear the fog horns from the ships blowing and then piano music starts playing kind of like floating in from somewhere off in the distance like somebody one of the neighbors is playing the piano but other than that it's just quiet and i thought that was really well uh, handled to kind of set that tone of the tension between the two of them and then phil is le he's leaving and he's it's they they don't even kiss they don't hug they don't even barely look at each other and he's waiting in the hallway for the elevator and he decides that he can't just leave her like that so he goes back and knocks on the door and she answers and the tension's broken but i think it's it's not really broken it's just that they don't want to end on a on a fight right. like that because it definitely comes back later it felt to me like it was kind of Okay, they're they're back together, but there's going to be more to this story. Oh, definitely. Um, the next scene, the next scene is uh, they're they're they've called the personnel manager in from the magazine, and he's having a meeting with Mister Minifee, and Mister Minifee is letting him know on, a, on no uncertain terms that that was not okay <laughs> to hi not hire somebody based on their religion or their name or whatever, and that they're going to have a new ad that goes out that says that uh, religion is a matter of indifference to this office. And I thought that was, you know, that's interesting because now, you know, like job descriptions or job postings always have that disclaimer at the bottom that says that that's the case. Like, that's just the way things are now. Right. But this was a big deal back in 1947 for them to do that. Oh, yeah. It's like almost, uh, let me see, 15 years before any of the equal rights a legislation was passed in the early 60s. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I watched that personnel director. He could not get out of Mr. Minifee's <laughs> office fast enough. No, he was in the hot seat. He was in big trouble. <laughs> if he'd have had a rollerblade, he'd have been on it. Uh, I tell you. Oh, and I think I got my scenes a little mixed up because the next scene is, is the scene between uh, Philip and Elaine when, when Elaine is talking about Mr. Green, is it true about Mr. Jordan? What true about Mr. Jordan? Well, he's telling everybody about Mr. Minifee's ad. He thinks it's a wonderful thing, he says. He does, huh? And I thought I'd ask you if it's really true that the ad says right out that... Right straight out, Miss Wales. And it's going to be in all the papers tomorrow. Practically inviting any type at all to apply. Any type? What do you mean? Mr. Green... You don't want things changed around here, do you? Even though you are a writer, and it's different for writers. Different for writers, how? Well, I mean, just let them get one wrong one in here, and it'll come out of us. 
It's no fun being the fall guy for the kikey ones. Now, look, Miss Wales. We've got to be frank with each other. You have a right to know right now that words like yid and kike and kikey and nigger and coon make me kind of sick no matter who says them. But I only said it for a type. Yeah, but we're talking about a word first. But, Mr. Green, that, that doesn't mean a thing. Why, sometimes I even say it to myself, about me, I mean. Like, if I'm about to do something and I know I shouldn't, I say, oh, don't be such a little kike. <laughs> That's all. But just let one objectionable one get in oh, here. Just a minute, what do you mean by objectionable? Loud and too much rules. They don't and... hire any loud, vulgar girls here. What makes you think they're going to suddenly start? It's not only that. Mr. Green, you're sort of heckling me. You know as well as I do the sort that starts trouble in a place like this and the sort that doesn't, like you or me. So what's the sense of pinning me down? You mean because we don't look especially Jewish, because we're okay Jews, because with us it can be kept nice and comfortable and quiet. I didn't say any... Now listen, Miss Wales, I hate anti-Semitism. I hate it when it comes from you or anybody who's Jewish just as much as I hate it when it comes from a Gentile. Me? Why, Mr. Green... I'll see you tomorrow, Miss Wales. Good night. And again, Gregory Peck gets angry at this point because he's confronting her on her uh, her ideas and her anti-Semitic kind of behavior. He's also beginning to feel what it's like. Yeah, he is. Firsthand, which is what he wanted to do in order to write the story. And it's working. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Well, but Philip's in a pretty good mood, and he's leaving work that day, and he walks by Anne Dietrich's uh, office, who's the fashion editor for the magazine, and Anne uh, proposes that they go out for drinks. And here we have, I think, the first kind of openly, the first open confrontation between Phil and somebody related to him being Jewish. Because one of the other staff members of the magazine comes up to him and says that, uh, you must have been uh, in public relations in the war. And, and Phil's like, well, why do you say that? Why couldn't I have been a GI? And this other guy's like, well, I just assumed. And then Anne gets all upset at him because he says, well, I have some of my best friends are Jewish. <laughs> the, <laughs> it's like, the, oh, the my God. Line. Yeah, yeah, the classic line. Some of my best friends are black or some of my best friends are Asian. Some of my best that friends are Jewish. That guy couldn't get out of the restaurant fast enough after that blunder. Yeah, he kind of knew that he'd stepped in it there. But it, again, wow. it just shows how ingrained these ideas and behaviors are. I don't think that guy even realized that he was doing anything offensive. Uh, probably you? I mean, not. Probably not, no. Given 1947 and all that was going on? Yeah. Probably not. So let's just jump ahead a little bit here. I think uh, we've gone on for quite quite a while. Well, I, I want to wrap it up, uh, part one here, with the conversation that uh, Philip has at a dinner party at Anne's house. Again, she's the fashion editor for the magazine. And they meet Professor Lieberman, who is a world-famous, uh, world-renowned physicist. And they start to talk about this story that Philip's doing. And Professor, this is my fiance Kathy Lacey. How do you do, Professor? I'm Phil Green. As a matter of fact, John Minifee has been wanting to get us together. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, he told me he did. How do you do? I'm doing a series for him on anti-Semitism. For or against? Well, he thought that we might hash over some ideas. What sort of ideas? Palestine, for instance, Zionism. Which? Palestine is a refuge? Or Zionism is a movement for a Jewish state? The confusion between the two, Good. more than anything. If we agree there's confusion, we could talk. We scientists love confusion. <laughs> but right now I'm starting on a new crusade of my own. 
You see, my young friends, I have no religion, so I'm not Jewish by religion. Further, I'm a scientist, so I must rely on science, which tells me I'm not Jewish by race, since there's no such thing as a distinct Jewish race. There's not even such a thing as a Jewish type. Well, my crusade will have a certain charm. I will simply go forth and state flatly, I'm not a Jew. Or with my face, that becomes not an evasion, but a new principle. A scientific principle. <laughs> For a scientific age. Precisely. There must be millions of people nowadays who are religious only in the vaguest sense. I've often wondered why the Jewish ones among them still go on calling themselves Jews. Can you guess why, Mr. Green? No, no, but I'd like to know. Because the world still makes it an advantage not to be one. Thus, for many of us, it becomes a matter of pride to go on calling ourselves Jews. So you see, I will have to abandon my crusade before it begins. Only if there were no anti-Semites can I go on with it. I just thought that speech was just so nuanced and so spot on to how <clears throat> complex this issue is. Yeah. And, and he was just the perfect person to deliver it. Because he's very scientific and he comes right out and yeah. says, I'm, not, I'm just going to say that I'm not Jewish. I'm just, I have no religion. But then he, at the end of his speech, he says, "Well, I guess I have to be Jewish." You know, it's it's like <laughs> <You're right. laughs> it's like this turn of phrase that he does. It's great. Another very very good actor from there, Samuel Jaffe, plays that part. He's been in a lot of movies. He looked oh yeah, no kidding. He was he was really good in that role. Just for the I don't know two minutes that he was on screen, but again, a pivotal role in the movie. That is a good place to. Uh sort of set the stage for part two, huh? Yeah, because after that, uh, Professor Lieberman says, would, uh, Phil, would you go get me a plate of dinner? I'm, I'd like to sit and talk with your lovely uh, fiancé. Uh, we've, we've totally skipped over the fact that uh, Philip and Kathy are engaged at this point. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. They don't make a big deal of it in the movie. Uh, no, again, it just kind of progresses along. And uh, Philip is at the dinner line getting food, and Anne comes up to him and says, oh, are you going to... Have you told the Kathy's family yet? And Philip says, no, not yet. And she says something like, well, I'd love to be on the sidelines of that conversation. And Philip's, well, why is that? And she goes, oh, you'll see. So, you yeah. know, there's something going on there. And, and that, I think that's probably yeah. a good place to end it because then things really start to slide downhill for Phil in a, in a big way uh, in his different relationships with people. Okay, well, um, like you say, it's a 10 out of 10, isn't it? It sure movie. is, yeah. It's 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 a powerful movie. I was uh, I finished I was finishing it up last night, and my oldest daughter walked in and she goes, "Well, what you doing?" And I said, "I just finished a really good movie. I think the whole family should watch it." And I told her what it was about, and she said, "Oh, it sounds interesting." So until next time, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm Bob Johnson, and you've been listening to Classic Movie Reviews at ClassicMovieReviews.net. And we'll see you in uh, two weeks. Actually, next week. Part two will come out next week. Oh, next week. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Great. Have a good week of movie watching, everybody.
I like I like having some like last time it was a short like twenty minute review of Fantastic <laughs> Voyage. <laughs> this guy's gonna it's be like a two hour movie. review of this movie. It's like oh wow. I think I think it's fun though. I think it's kind of nice to mix it up. Oh, I I do too. And I'd forgotten how good this movie was. I mean, I I knew it was good, but I love that scene where Dave Goldman goes after that guy in the restaurant. Oh man, I thought he was gonna deck like, him. That was awesome. <laughs> it's like. Wow! Don't mess with the guy in uniform. I mean, what was he thinking? I don't. Well, obviously his his partner was uh, very apologetic because he knew <laughs> the guy could be really seriously hurt. Yeah. Hey, what was it like? Uh, what was it like watching this movie with Nancy and her family? Did you? Did you? Was it different? Uh, I mean, was it? Did they have any comments or? It's different in the sense that they've lived it. Yeah. Especially her mom. Uh, and they both, I mean, they both love the movie and her mom is at a point now in where she's at just in her age and all that she can't really verbalize what she's feeling, but to watch her watch it, I'm thinking to myself, cause she grew up in Chicago. Yeah. I have to believe that she was feeling, man, I went through this. I went through this myself. She was mesmerized for that whole two hours. Does yeah. he say anything like this is pretty realistic? Or yeah, she does. Yeah. She thinks it's very realistic, and it exists. It exists when she well it exists now. Yeah, in some areas. I mean, I I ran across it someplace in the last month and a half. Some I don't remember the context of it, but it it's it's alive and well every place, and as along as with other stuff, you know, Asians, uh, Hispanics, Native American, you name it. Yeah. I've, when I go to Montana the first of September. I'm sure I'm going to hear some comment about either the Hooterites, which is a religious organization, or Native Americans mm-hmm. drinking too much. Yeah. You know, it's, it doesn't go away. Check the news every day. There it is. Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, you know, God almighty. Yeah. yeah I, but but well, Nancy, it, all, it all comes back to that idea that you've got to be carefully taught. Like, I, yeah. You know, and I, I can't wait to talk about that scene in part two with Dean Stockwell's character, and I, that just broke my heart because that kid's about Dean's age, and just the thought of getting picked on for that, you know, is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, there would have been a time, and there there are even today, where your kids might get some kind of comment because of their Asian European background. Well, they still not, get, not, they not still, people not still in, do stuff like slant their eyes and make like funny like sounds, and and it, I mean. I don't know to what extent that's hurtful to the kids, or maybe they think it's kind of funny. I don't, but I, I, I still think that there are, even now, you know, and it's kind of the same as in this movie where people are just making these jokes, and maybe they don't realize that it's not so much a joke as it is like a, a really kind of a hurtful thing to say about somebody. Um, so, yeah, it definitely still goes on. Definitely. And I know you've got neighbors, and I'm sure we do here once I get to know them better, that have feelings like that about uh, gay people or, you know, you name it. The thing I've noticed here since moving here six months ago is um, there's a very large Jewish community within Los Angeles, obviously, because of the size of the city. And I think it's strong like that because of the history Oh yeah, you know the the, the background history because there were areas of the city like Burbank, Pasadena. He's talked about where 
they it wasn't it, it you weren't you weren't really accepted that well if you were uh, Jewish and and in Burbank I guess now it's uh, Hispanic so you know it's I think of Los Angeles is a very diverse and open city but it isn't well think about uh, something I was reading over the weekend about how there are these people camped out on the Mexican American border with rifles and they take yes. pot shots at like yes. families and kids and stuff that are Children. trying to, and yes. it's like, how can you justify doing that? I mean, I feel like these people are like refugees trying to get into our country because they need help, you know, but I, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric and, and conservative news outlets that will paint it as this terrible, you know, plague that's trying to come into our country. And, you know, never mind that we're all, that none of us are native here except for the Native Americans, you know. It's like we've all come from other countries. It's it's like what what makes you so special that that makes you different than these folks that are trying to get into the United States for probably the same reason that your that their ancestors came here. Well, here's a here's a thought. I mean, here's a question, rhetorical question probably. But let's say you went to the school board and said you'd like to show gentlemen's agreement in a in an assembly of students at the junior high school or the middle school. Think of what that would cause. I think a lot of people, not a lot, but there would be some people that say, why would you want to do that? Yeah. Not a lot of difference between then and in 1947 and now. Yeah. Because they, they're like, there's not a problem. Well, you might get some of the reaction like in what we saw in the movie where it's like we either A, we don't want to talk about that, or B... It's just not appropriate or, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah, I think I'm sure that there would be some people that would have that reaction out. The Wouldn't extent to which that, either. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's probably true. So but, I, but I've, I've, I've gotten a different perspective on the whole religious thing by living, you know, in, in, with seeing her mom and all the people in her family and the people in her network of people that are from all kinds of background. Our wedding, at our wedding, we had every, there were, there was a Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic. It was a, and I'm thinking to myself, why, why is that so hard to do every place else? Why is, what's, it's just, it's, it, 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 it really all comes is, back it's to anger. It makes me angry. Yeah. It makes me angry too. Um, I think it all comes back to just what people are taught, what people, yeah. what their upbringing is. It's like the only way that we could ever stop this is to stop teaching people to hate. But I do feel like there's some hope at the end of this movie when yes. uh, Mrs. Green talks about how, may, what's this century going to be? Maybe this is the century when all free free people learn to live together. And, you know, I I felt like, she had this perspective. It was a long perspective of the future that says maybe it's not going to be in my lifetime, but I'd sure like to see the start of it, you know? Yeah. And I feel, and I feel like the, we're, we're headed. I know that there's a lot of, of it still, but I, I still feel like we're headed in the right direction. In the right direction. Well, and when this movie came out, it was projected to not do well. And it was a huge mega hit. Financially so and critically. Went, yeah. 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 And then the next year, Israel was recognized as a state. Yeah. Often wonder if this movie had some influence on President Truman and that decision. I don't you never know. know. Yeah, if not, it's a coincidence. That's for sure. Boy, we wax philosophically, don't we? 
We do. Uh, we should probably, <laughs> should probably wrap it up. <laughs> All right. All righty. Uh, give everybody a hug, and I will be ready for part two next Monday. All right, me too. Love you. Love you.